This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast. We hope that you're enjoying the conversations that we've been bringing to you with some very prominent Christian leaders and thinkers and influencers. Uh, the guest that we have this morning is somebody who will be known to a number of our of our community. Dr. Wirakun, Dr. Patricia Wirakun, is a medical doctor that has explored a particular speciality in the area of, of uh, human sexuality and sexual education. Uh, she first graduated with a degree from Colombo, the University of Colombo, uh, undertook further studies in the University of Hawaii and then with the University of New South Wales. She is a prominent presenter and author and educator. Dr. Wirakun, it is absolutely lovely to have you with us this morning. How are you on this fine day? Pleasure to be with you. It is a fine day, isn't it? Just looking at the beautiful skies over Parramatta, which is where I live. Yeah. Uh, I love you. Well, you're not you're not too far from where we are. We're we're based out in Western Sydney, and I agree with you. I as I was driving in, beautiful sort of weather made me really appreciate the the gift that God gives us in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, Patricia, are you okay if I talk, call you Patricia? Yes, please. Yes. Um, Patricia, you you uh, are a medical doctor. You had a your first degree was in medicine. Um, can you tell me about how? you decided or what led you to that vocation? It's not an easy line of work to, um, to sign yourself up for lots of study, lots of intensity. What was it that drew you to medicine as a career? In Sri Lanka, which is where I grew up, basically if you did well in high school, if you were a girl, you went into medicine. If you were a boy, then you went into engineering. That was like the way it was. It was just a pattern of society, huh? It was just a pattern of the the culture that you were in? It was the pattern because the way we were brought up, we are very conservative. I, I grew up in a very conservative Tamil Christian family. And going to medical school or going for higher education was really considered like a finishing school before you right. went into an arranged marriage. So my parents were like, oh, that's nice, dear. Go and study medicine and then you, we won't have to pay as much dowry for you. So. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, um, I'm interested to know that you were in a, a Christian, a Tamil Christian family and arranged marriages were still part of your culture. That was, that was uh, something that carried over into the Christian community as equally as, as uh other faith backgrounds who, who had their arranged marriage. That that would be true. It was at, at my time. I mean, look, I'm 73 now, so we are talking a long, long time ago. And, and at that time, arranged marriages were very much the way it was done. Although I didn't. I married a man from the other ethnic group. I married a Sinhalese, and so I went against the grain of the arranged marriage. But arranged marriages different from like forced marriages. So arranged marriage means basically you would be introduced to someone by the parents or by an auntie. 
And then that was kind of considered if you kind of get on well together, well, then you got married. So Yeah, that's a good uh, a good distinction, an, an arranged marriage, a facilitated relationship rather than a forced yeah. relationship. Yeah, that, that's that's very helpful. So you you obviously did well at school. What what was school like for you as a, a young person in Sri Lanka? It, it was actually fascinating because I my parents were in a tea plantation. This was the time of the British Empire. We're talking nineteen forty seven to about fifties when I was I was born in forty seven. So it was the time of the British Empire. My father was looking after a tea factory. And so I was in a boarding school in right. Sri Lanka and in Colombo. And so I tell people, you know, being in a boarding school for eight years, I think I was perfectly prepared to live under lockdown conditions. Yes, right. <laughs> I was made for this. <laughs> I can eat anything. I can just make do with anything. I grew up in a boarding school. So, yeah, it was a Methodist missionary boarding school. And although I grew up as a Christian, my grandparents were converted from Hinduism. Mm. And so although I grew up under the what my son calls the drippings of grace, mm. I actually came to understand what Lord Jesus Christ meant in my life at the feet of wonderful British missionary women mm. in school. And so I would really say that that's when I kind of, concreted my faith mm. in school. And so, I mean, it played a big role in my life, mm. the ministry. So you're, you're in boarding school and you, you have these Christian um, missionary teachers. Was mm-hmm. it the classes? Was it the chapel services? Was it camps? What, what was the thing that made Christianity come alive for you in, in that school context? I would say it was a couple of things. One is because we were in the boarding school, we had the chaplain and the principal who would actually spend time with us, Mm. like reading the Bible on an evening and singing all the old Wesleyan hymns. Mm. So that's one main factor. The other factor was that the way they actually understood and treated those of us, like myself, who were really like the, the naughty ones in school, <laughs> in boarding school, because I always pushed boundaries, which is probably why I ended up as a sexologist. But I was always pushing boundaries. And these wonderful missionary women would just understand and tell my parents, look, let her be, she'll be okay. Mm. But, and that understanding that godliness that mm. they showed us was what such an amazing, amazing saintliness mm. to grow under. It was like we grew under that the saint. Mm. And that to me was what really made me my faith mm. today. So it's interesting you talked, you had a nature that was interested in, in exploring the limits or, or experiencing new things, pushing boundaries as you okay. described it. That's not necessarily the way most people view a Christian faith. They see it as a very conservative, very safe, very um, careful, cautious, constrained life. How, do you, how have you lived with uh, that notion of a, a Christian faith and yet this nature that is exploratory and and uh, wants to experience. 
see, the point is that being a Christian, and this is where I challenge our young people today, especially in our culture now, but even when I was growing up in a country which was like mainly Buddhist, like 80% Buddhist, 20 plus Hindu, and less than 6% or so really Christians, and even that, a much smaller number of Christians who are evangelicals mm. like us. The point is, we are countercultural. Mm. We were cultural in Sri Lanka when we were growing up in our faith and our belief, because, you know, we grew up in a time of like, Devil worship mm. and you know, devil dances and beliefs and customs and all sorts of traditions. Mm. So, being Christian was countercultural then. Mm. And I tell people today, in our world today, which is a post truth, post modernity culture, to be a Christian who says, I believe in one truth, it's totally countercultural. Mm. So that's why I think, you know, I was always one who was countercultural. Mm. And our challenge to young people today, if you want to be countercultural, be countercultural for Christ. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Do you, do you feel that now that you are living in a, a, a community, a culture that drew so much of its heritage from Christianity, is it Harder or easier to be countercultural when the fabric, the assumptions of the community you're part of have, have so much Christian overlay in it? Uh, what I feel now is, look, I'm 73 and I'm retired. I was an academic with the University of Sydney for 25 years. And for eight years of that, I was director of a graduate program in sexual health. So I retired when I was 65, which means I'm eight years retired now and doing the speaking and writing. But the, the reality is that it is never going to be easy in our culture today to speak out as a Christian. Now, I personally have had some experiences of, I would call it persecution, mm. where I some not so nice things happen. So anyone, now I can say I'm retired. I don't care. I can speak. But a lot of young people, a lot of people who are in university or working are going to be challenged mm. their Christian belief, especially in the area of gender today, mm. in the fluidity. Mm. If we dare speak to one man, one woman, married as the place mm. for sex intimacy, that is so completely against what culture believes in today or the majority of culture, which is amazing mm. because you are supposedly a country that came out of Christendom. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like Sri Lanka, which doesn't make any pretense of being Christian. Mm. We are yeah, Sinhalese Buddhist country. Mm. We are supposed to be a country built on Christendom who repeat the Lord's Prayer in government. And mm. so... We are in this place. We are standing for Christian values, especially mm. in the area of sexuality, will be challenged. I, I want to come back to you and, and ask you some questions about your standing for Christian values in, in that particular area of gender identity, 
and and uh, sexuality. But let me let me take you a little further back to your own story. You you've been at boarding school. You obviously do well. You follow the expected pattern of your culture. Head off to uh, University of Colombo, finish your medical degree. What then carried you to overseas studies, further studies? What uh, was the the prompt for that? Yeah, when I was in medical school, I fell in love with my now 46 years married husband. Congratulations. That I needed to like chop the batch if I was going to get a position in Colombo. Because we had 200 medics in our batch. And in our time, if you graduate, it depends where you stand in the kind of merit listing and then you get a position. So I studied really hard and I did well and I got the position in Colombo and I was working in a trauma unit for a couple of years and then the professor of physiology uh, actually invited me to apply for an academic position. So I was a lecturer in reproductive physiology at the Faculty of Medicine in Colombo and I got a scholarship to study in the University of Hawaii. Now when I went there I was going to do reproductive physiology but my professor was a psychologist. Mm. And he was at that time, we're talking 1980, one of the best known professors working in the area of gender by the name of Professor Milton Diamond. And so I worked with him. At that time, I was just so fascinated with this whole area of mm. sexuality and especially gender. He was running transgender clinics, although those days they were called transsexual clinics. Mm. And I was helping him run the clinic in 1980. Mm. And I studied with him and worked in sexual health. And I was worshipping in a wonderful evangelical Baptist church. So I was able to, what I call, bring my twin passions of Mm. God and sex together. That's where I kind of really brought that idea that God's story when it comes to gender and sexuality and sexual behavior is a good story, mm. a better story than what culture gives us. And therefore we as Christians have a better story to tell the world. So uh, and we'll come back and visit this story too, because I think that's a, a large part of what God has gifted you with uh, insight and expertise to be able to share. But can I before we get into that, ask you, it's, it's an area where Christians often feel a bit uncomfortable. Why, why do you think that is? Why is it that Christians sort of uh, aren't all that comfortable talking about this part of our identity or of our culture even? Well, I mean, at one level it amazes me because we, as I said, the Bible is a book that speaks clearly about sexuality. And so they, I, I, at one point, I don't know why we, we feel so anxious about it. But on the other side, the fact is that I think historically, especially Western Christendom, has looked at sexuality as like that was the primal sin. You know, it's not the apple on the tree, but the pear on the ground yes. who were the problem yes. kind of thing. That is so untrue. So from like the Western Christendom has looked at sex as being something not nice. And, you know, the body has not been using your body and pleasure 
and therefore sexual sin becomes some kind of sin that is worse than other sin. So yes. that I think has built into the church's view where even like ministers even today are anxious mm. about speaking on sex and sexuality in case they accept people. Mm. And I think the Bible speaks about sex all the time from Genesis of Adam and Eve and naked and no shame and one flesh to Revelation and of course songs in the middle but it's that embarrassment mm. about speaking because somehow sex is considered something dirty and not to be talked about and mm. sexual sin as some sort of out there thing not like other things. Mm. Very sad but I think that's still carried in many places in our churches. So it's rather rather than being an inherently Christian thing, it's more part of that conservative English empire, Victorian morality that that has uh, left, left some imprint. You've got the puritanical Victorian yeah. morality. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I come from a subcontinent. We wrote the Kama Sutra. So. <laughs> yeah. Is there room for a, a Christian version of that or is that going a step too far is it is it something that well i would say that's the book we wrote for marriage called the best sex for life yeah 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 the book called the best sex for life which basically talks about godly marriage good sex from engagement to the nursing home which is where my husband and i will be (laughs) soon the the notion that you you mentioned there um a book a book written on the subcontinent about the the topic You've written your own book, which is um, "Sex by the Book." What, yeah. what? What do you mean by that? Do you, you there's there's ways you could interpret that. It be it could be here is a, an instruction manual, or it could be here is the code of conduct. They're two different ways of viewing the book. <laughs> well, our, our book. Well, I have a number of books, but the book that we wrote for couples called "The Best Sex for Life" is basically a book that talks about godly marriage and the role of sex in godly marriage as one that God created and gave us a gift and a good gift with a place and a pattern and a purpose to appropriation and recreation Mm. and find husband and wife together ultimately to mirror Christ's love for the church Mm. and then it talks about how then do we live it out? How do we live out this pleasure in an other-focused manner mm. in our Christian marriages? That's in a nutshell mm. called the book, The Best Sex for Life. So it's not just articulating all the rules that the Bible puts up around it. It is a, a more exploration of its its place in, in human, human, human creation as... as uh, ordained by God. That's that's sort of how you'd approach the whole thing? It's that, all that you said and more, because it's this, how do you apply it on a day-to-day manner as husband and wife? Our ethos is that if husband and wife look at each other and say, how can I serve you in every way, including in our sex life, that makes for a great marriage. Mm. That's one correct. 13, that's Ephesians 5, the mm. relationship of Christ and the church. That's mm. what we have out there for husband and wife. You're made to care for, to love, to sacrifice, mm. and have fun. Mm. And fun, sex. Mm. 
Patricia, you're, you're describing aspects of uh, sexual relations that are maybe a little bit foreign for what our current culture attempts to adopt. We, we've talked just before that the Victorian notion, the puritanical view of uh, Christian culture elevated sexuality to uh, mm-hmm. um, a level that was above any other part of life or any other expression. Is there, has the pendulum swung the other way for our current culture that it, 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 be, it, has, it has lost its meaning and it's lost its significance? It's, it's just? Yeah. That's exactly as you were saying. I mean, we've gone in our current culture. In some ways, it's a weird kind of schizophrenic way we look at it. In one way, when we talk about sex, it's kind of nothing. You know, it's something I use as a commodity for my self-gratification. It's completely different to what I was talking about, mm. price for other focus. Mm. So it's Thing I use for my self-gratification. So, you know, I don't honor you. I don't honor my own body. I will just use whatever's there for my satisfaction. Mm. Of course, pornography plays into that perfectly. Mm. I'm demeaning to women, but it's a sexual object that I can, I can't get a human being, I'll just watch pornography. Because all that matters is that I have my feelings satisfied. So it's a desire driven. My desires, I must have them met. Whatever I do, I am what matters. So the self-gratification, that's one thing where sex is commodified. On the other end, we talk about gender, where we talk about sex then becomes your very identity. Yes. And if you don't have sex, I am nothing. Yes. It is be content to be Old, I must somehow be sexual, yes. have sex, and even my own body must be adapted to whatever my sexual feelings are. Yes, yes, so that's it's good. Kind of twin. It's nothing, and yet it is my very identity. Yes, yes. Uh, that that is uh, the the juxtaposition of those ideas that are so prevalent in our the conversation that we're part of. And, and I think you're right that, that uh, Christians need to find a better understanding of the place of sexual identity in the whole notion of what does it mean to be an image bearer created for a, for a purpose, created to be in relationship. Um, that, that's, that's quite profound. What, what is, uh, for young people who have grown up in uh, Christian homes, Christian schools, where this has not been a topic of instruction. They've been left to make it up or pick up what they can from their culture. If, if a young person feels that they haven't understood well where this, this part of them exists, what advice would you have for them about where, where to go for help or where to go to get clarity? Okay, let me just give this to you in a nutshell. I mean, I would say go to our books, but mm. end up. But basically, let me just give it to you in a nutshell what I talk to schools about. When you talk to young people, the first thing I tell them is look, recognize that in this cyber connected, crazy world you live in, you need to understand that it's okay to be confused. Mm. It's okay. 
because you know what? Your brain are still developing. So mm. we just have to understand that it is a time of confusion. The emotional, sexual brain is erupting like a volcano. Mm. But the control brain, what we call the frontal brain, doesn't mature till you're well into your 20s. Mm. For teen years, they're developing from childhood to your early 20s. You're like a red Ferrari on steroids with mm. your excellent no, hardly any brake pedal and no GPS. Mm. So to confuse, to need help, to need guidance is actually normal to be carried away by what your peers say, what social media. So understand that your brain needs help. So it's okay to be confused. The second thing is to understand that in a world today, that there's all these influences grabbing at you to give you a world-focused identity. And it's important that you recognize that that world-focused identity is going to be really take you away from God's good plan for your life. Mm. And then look to where your identity truly comes from. Mm. And that is the Lord Christ. So I take them to like... Uh, from Genesis through to Ephesians, you were chosen, you can call God daddy. So take them to Psalm 139, you know, you were knit in your mother's womb. Just if our young people okay to be confused, fix your identity, then you can influence, you can control your behavior. Mm. And so we talk about understanding sexual desires. The desires are given by God, mm. but we are to control and direct our desires. And mm. sometimes you help. We talk about what you feed your brain is important mm. because the brain remains malleable kinds of neuroplasticity. So you feed your brain with pornography. You are going to build those channels in your brain, those pathways that will accept on as normal behavior. And mm. that is totally different to what God wants you to feed your brain with good things, Ephesians 4, 8, you know, you think about good things. Mm. And talk about what it is, you know, I feed your brain with good things. Mm. Understand, it's okay to fall in love. Love is good. Song, song speaks about it. But again, it's an emotion. Mm. Don't, get, don't get sucked into the world's lies that every feeling, every emotion must be satisfied. That mm. is the word we are given self-control. We are given a good pattern and place and purpose for our sexuality. Mm. And these are things our young people need to understand. So I tell them, yes, that's why we wrote the book. Mm. And we've got insects by the book, which is for 15 plus and growing up by the book, which is like 10 to 14-year-olds. And for primary schoolers, for parents and grandparents to read with primary school, shepherds and bees by the book. So we've written the book. I'm just doing the last edit on a parenting book. So we've got the resources. But more than anything else, I tell young people, go to your parents. Go to people you trust with your questions. Don't go to Dr. Google or to your friends. Yes. Or worse, do not go to pornography yes. to get your questions answered. Yes, you're, you're raising an interesting point there that um, well, what, I'm, what I'm hearing you describe is that the, the notion of, of uh, 
sexuality and sexual practice actually stems from some much more fundamental ideas. There are, there are some much mm-hmm. bigger questions that need to be asked and answered before you can get to the practicalities of how's this going to look and, and what it's going to be like in life. And, and you made a point about the tendency of, of uh, young people to go to their peers, to look for the counsel of their colleagues who were likely to be in the same confused state without a lot of, of input and, and yet it's the source of, of information largely. Uh, is, that a, is that a problem for this current generation or is it a problem for every generation? That, that's a natural part of growing up. You see, when our adolescent brain develops, part of it is separation from the family, mm. which is a natural part of adolescent development. We all need that differentiation from the family to be adults. Yes. And so that's growing up. And we all did that. I mean, when friends, you went to your friends. Unfortunately, you overlay the cyber world on this. And suddenly your peers are not just the kids you walk to school with. Yes. Your peers are everybody. Yes. Your 1,200 friends on Snapchat and Instagram and yes. they don't Facebook, but on all the media. So then those influencers establish what are the ideas for identity and behavior. There lies the mm. danger. Mm. There is Days. The parents knew who you were walking to school with. They knew who the kids you were playing with. Mm. Now, no, oh, parents have no idea which parents should know mm. what your kids do on the side in the cyber world. But unfortunately, most many parents don't. So that's the danger. Not mm. that group peer influences are can be avoided. They can't. It's what's your peer group? What's your cyber world influences. That's what needs to be, parents need to be aware of. Mm. Uh, Patricia, we've been talking a lot about the idea of, of gender, um, gender in, in sense of, of uh, sexuality, but can I explore with you a bit more uh, a general concept of gender? You spoke at the beginning of our conversation of the pattern of the Sri Lankan culture that the the girls who did well at school would follow one path and the boys who did well at school would follow another path. That in itself is a type of gendering of life. Mm-hmm. Is, is that something that is based in, in a Christian understanding or is that something that, that is open for reframing? I love that question because I, I, I always, when I talk about gender, I just, again, I won't go into details, but when I speak about gender, I say, look, firstly, we need to understand that there's a clear biology. We are created male or female, mm. not something in between. There is no gradation of biology, male, female, and a few uh, particular medical conditions where that doesn't work out, but that's biology. But what we're talking about now is how do we, what we call gendered performance or mm. gendered behavior. Mm. Unfortunately, even as a church, we do stay with stereotypes. And that's something we need to be very careful about. Mm. Now, like I said, you know, in Sri Lanka, we were very stereotyped. Like I was 
supposed to do the cooking and the cleaning and um, helping mummy out. While my two brothers were allowed to get out there and play on their bikes and climb trees and have fun. I hated being a girl mm. because of things it concerned. So, of course, I was busy waiting to break out and do something different. But the reality is that, yes, you, we grew up in stereotype cultures and the churches need to be so careful mm. because the culture today, stay with me here, in our culture today, a little girl who likes doing boyish things. I mean, she likes um, being with daddy when he's working on the car, likes playing soccer, just hates Barbie dolls and hates cooking. All of a sudden, when there was a time when we would say, oh, she's such a tomboy, you know, that's sweet. Today, that girl would be told, oh, you must be a boy because yes. you like boysy. Yes. And simply a boy who likes doing girlish things and, you know, so-called stereotype girl things yes. of wearing and going for ballet would be told, you must be a girl. That's why you want to do this. Yes. It is, you know, and we as a church need to be so aware of it. What is masculinity? What is femininity? Do we keep the stereotype? Let's look at the Bible. We can talk about it when I talk to young people. I say, look at the Bible. Look at this young man who used to play music on the harp and, mm. you know, he to be dancing with the girls. Mm. But he was a warrior. Today, King David would probably be called transgender. Mm. We have models. Yes, yes. We have strong women. I mean, even Mary, the mother of Jesus, I mm. mean, she was a wonderful mother, and, you know, nurturing. But she was a strong woman. So we have so many examples. Biblical examples of true masculinity. Yes. It shows the Lord Jesus Christ was gentle mm. and nurturing. And so we need to build on this non-stereotypical mm. and yet biblical masculinity and femininity unashamedly for mm. our young people. Mm. Yeah, that, that's very good. I, as you were describing or pointing out that uh, that shift in the way people are thinking, it's almost as though there's reverse stereotyping and it's just as strong if if a an individual likes certain things it is ipso facto speaking to their gender so rather than mm-hmm. gender identity prescribing behaviors it's now almost flipped around that it's a certain behaviors that are speaking back to the gender identity of that of that person and the stereotype is just as inflexible even though it's oh, yes. it's traveling in a different direction and uh, I think from the conversation we're having, just as false, just as yeah. deceptive. Yeah, just give you one example there. For instance, if you take men, biological men, who decide that they are women because of some feeling in their brain that they're women, and therefore they go through transition or in today's terminology, affirmation, mm. but of course do whatever your desire says mm. to get your and so if you go through that, we often find that those men who are going, becoming so-called women are actually more female in their behavior yes. than standard female yes. in dress and their behavior yes. makeup. It's like this 
exaggerated yes. question of women, womanhood. Yes. Like most women are going, what? Yeah, it's a caricature almost. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You know, which is an interesting concept. Yeah, yeah, that is. Um, as we come to a close, Patricia, we're just about out of our time. Really fascinated in uh, the the way this particular topic has launched into much deeper issues of of human identity and and how that works. Um, you're an educator. Uh, you, you became an educator. You were first appointed as a, an academic uh, at Colombo, and that's become a theme for your life. There is some fundamental differences in understanding about how people learn. One, one school of thought would say you learn from experience. You have to get out there and try it and trial and error, fail, succeed. Another area of learning talks about being able to learn by instruction, lecture, the advice of others. Where, where do you feel in the notion of how you are educating about this aspect of human identity? Where is the balance between those two? Wait, is it, is it incumbent? For young people, I've got to learn by experience, get out and make mistakes, or should they be taking advice from those that have gone before and the advice from the book, whether it's yours or whether it's it's uh, the word of God? Where do you see the balance between those? I would say it would come down to two, maybe three principles. The first thing is that for young people and adults to recognize the importance of sitting at the feet of good teaching. Mm. Because, you know, the reality is, especially young people, your brains are developing mm. and what goes to your brain is going to wire your brain for the future. Mm. So, just sit at the feet of good teaching. Now, while you're sitting at the feet of good teaching, doesn't mean you're like a sponge just absorbing things. So, good teaching interactive teaching. Mm. So that is why we always encourage, and this is what I'm bringing out in the parenting book that I've just at the last stages of uh, writing or editing, is that it's about conversation. Because today, especially, it's not just do it because I say it. Mm. Let's talk about it. And let me show you that God's word actually has a better plan. Mm. So interaction and talking about it between parents, using everyday examples, mm. allowing kids that literacy to critique worldview. Mm. Not just because I say it, but let me give you that underlying ethos and knowledge mm. to critique the worldview. Mm. So that interactive. And thirdly, learning from role modeling mm. and example. That's good. So, yes, the feat of good teaching, interactive, giving that media literacy, cyber literacy to critique culture. And thirdly, make sure that you have good role models for your children, whether they be teachers, youth workers, above all, parents. Yeah, that's very good. One of the things that I, I appreciate about your your communication, Patricia, is that you, you clearly have an understanding that God isn't afraid of our questions. He's, he's not one who um, refuses or, or denies the fact that we can ask and we can want to know things that that aren't plain to us at the moment. 
Is that sort of how you've lived your life before God? Uh, Definitely, because look, I've lived through three race riots in Sri Lanka. You know, we had racial riots. My husband and I belong to the two ethnic groups. We were trying to get rid of each other. My poor little boy, my son was like in the middle and not knowing what he was. There were times we would cry out to God and say, what is happening? Mm. You know, us to understand. And I think, I mean, I know God hears our prayers. And he knows our confusion because, look, the reality is we're never going to be totally happy till we get to heaven. So God knows that we live in a world that is confused and sinful, and therefore we cry out to him, and it is okay to Mm. cry out to him. Yeah, that's very good. Um, Patricia, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I I think... uh, the, where we've ended up has been a really helpful place for us to come to say, well, whatever part of life it is, don't blindly step into what your culture might be dictating. Find good teachers, ask questions, interact with them, look for good role models that are going to be a good influence in your life. And, and whether it's your uh, gender identity, your sexual expression or the career that opens up ahead of you, there is something that God is interested in being involved in every part of our lives. Any last little words that you might want to share or leave with our listeners? Well, all I would say is that, look, we live in a world that is going to challenge us. And as I said to every young person out there, our God is a good God who gives us good gifts and sex is a good gift. It's a pattern, a place and a purpose of one man, one woman marriage as a place for sexual intimacy. Just have a good life, but know that being a Christian means following God's word and God will bless mm. that desire that you have to serve him. Yeah, that's lovely. So that, that, that final point that uh, the, the Bible is, is not just a code of conduct, but it is an, a user manual, instructions, how to get the best out of the product. Um, that's a good bit of advice for us to leave on. Congratulations on uh, your 73 years of service, your 46 years of marriage. Thank you. Thank you for your ministry to the the church and to uh, to the Christians that, that you've had a positive influence in. Uh, we continue to pray. Thank God will bless you. you. Uh, I encourage our listeners, if, you, if you've got some questions, go and find one of Patricia's books. And, uh, dig deep and, and ask questions. Thank you, Patricia. May the Lord be with you. God bless you too. Thank you. 